Okay. I think we are live. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Again, and ask for his blessing. Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you again for this time that you've given us to gather around the teaching of the gospel of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior, whom you gave that he may be the satisfaction for our sins, and by him we have access into your grace, by him we have eternal life, by him we have forgiveness of sins. We pray that you help us with the understanding of his truth. May you help me to speak as you help your people also to hear. We honor you, glorify you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. This morning we are back to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4, 13 to 25. Romans four thirteen to 25. This is what Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, recorded. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, Faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken so shall your descendants be. And not being made weak in, the, in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And that's the word of the Lord. We only have two titles, number one, fully convinced, and number two, written for our sake also. Written for our sake also. Good morning, one and all who are just joining us. Good to see you. 
I missed talking about Jesus last week because my voice was acting up. So be praying that it does not act up. I believe we have a very wonderful message this morning. And we'll be picking up from where we left the last time, if you have been following our teaching. And we'll begin this way. Post-theology is very deep and complex and requires God to help us understand the complexity and simplicity of it. His message is very simple. Salvation is by grace alone or is by Christ alone. But the seemingly simpler a machine works or looks, sometimes the more complicated are the moving parts behind it. And so with the gospel, it is a very simple message. Even little children can understand it. But once you start working the individual pieces, you discover very quickly that you're dealing with not a simple organism, but a very sophisticated one, which ultimately cannot be understood apart from God teaching it. There are a lot of people this morning who are seated in places where they think they are hearing the gospel. Yes, the preacher may have read from the Bible, but they're not going to preach the gospel. So there comes the aspect of the need of God to actually reveal the matter of Christ. The matter that God is addressing through Apostle Paul through the gospel that Paul was preaching is the matter that affects all men and women and children regardless of race, of color or religious affiliation, of material or marital status. You name it, the list goes on. But it affects all as long as they were born of a woman. And the matter is How does a sinner meet with God? What will they plead for their standing before him as righteousness so as to make it well between them and the thrice holy God? It is a matter of what men and women think and believe what it is that recommends them before God as righteousness. And on that basis, God granting them eternal life and absolution from all their sins and transgressions, even if they only had one sin, So the question that the gospel is answering is will God accept anything that men and women have contrived 
and have worked and packaged as righteousness and brought or will bring to God for his or her acceptance. And based on that, for God to make a legitimate exchange with sinners and give them things that are imperishable and in that exchange, God getting the perishable from men and women and in turn giving them the imperishable things of God. I hope people can understand what I'm saying. To say, is what we have good enough to make an exchange for the imperishable things of God? Will God be satisfied with that exchange? Is he not going to feel shortchanged in that kind of exchange? If not, how then is he to be satisfied? Because God has to be satisfied. These are things that are not being addressed in much of what is called gospel preaching. Is God satisfied? Will he be satisfied by anything that a man shall give in exchange? As Jesus said, what shall a man give in exchange for their soul? So principally, the whole matter comes down to an exchange that has to happen. And the exchange is not going to come by way of moral improvement or behavior modification. It requires more than what we can do. And so the gospel then is making a declaration and saying God has already been satisfied. He has been satisfied by something that he offered. That he offered by himself in the person of Christ. The exchange has already happened in the person of Christ. And we have in our exhibit, in this discussion, from the book of Romans, the life and example of the Jews as the extreme of the religious men who were under the system of the religion of law, of do this and do that, or don't do that. Touch this, don't touch that. The law that promised Life to everyone who obeyed all things that were written in it. To do them. And to do them perfectly. But the problem, it seems, was that the Jews did not understand, like many people of our day, the level of their sinfulness and depravity. They did not understand their inability 
to do what the law required and the actual demand of the law which is perfect obedience, perfect righteousness in every jot and tittle of it. The Jews probably thought their circumcision and being the physical descendants of Abraham, carrying the DNA of Abraham according to the flesh and some sprinkling of sincerity would make up for their shortcomings to the obedience of the law. And they hoped that on that basis, they would inherit eternal life. And that is why the Jews were arguing with Jesus and saying, we are the children of Abraham. We are the children of Abraham. But that is not how it works. Even the Lord Jesus refuted their arguments and said, well, if you were the children of Abraham, you would have done the deeds of Abraham because Abraham saw my day and he was glad. Abraham did not seek to kill me as you are seeking to kill me. You are of your father, the devil. So you have a different paternity. You have a different spiritual DNA from that of Abraham. The DNA of Abraham was the spiritual DNA of God. Your spiritual DNA is of the devil. That is why you are in unbelief. So God despised Apostle Paul to come and teach more on this matter of how a sinner is made righteous before him. And that question could only be answered for the sinner that is for you and me even today in what God declares to be the gospel of Christ Jesus. And in this gospel, a hopeless sinner is described in Romans 3, verses 10 to 18. You know that one very well. There's none righteous. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. All have turned their own way. That's the reference that I have here. Romans 3, 10 to 18. If you are one of those people, who are described in Romans 3, 10 to 18, as unrighteous. God is saying, this is the only way for you to come out of that. This can only be answered for you in this gospel. This gospel has answered all those questions for a sinner. All those things that the sinner could not do for themselves. This gospel has met all those requirements for them before God. How? Because in this gospel is revealed the righteousness of God. 
the righteousness that is of God. The righteousness that is of Christ through his faithfulness. A righteousness that has no spot or blemish. And this righteousness was apart from the righteousness from the law. In other words, it is a righteousness apart from any human obedience. Because the law in the proper scheme of, of things or salvation was, was, excuse me, was not given to make sinners righteous. Let me repeat that. The law was not given to make a sinner righteous, but to show them that they were not righteous. As Paul said, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, the law was given to reveal sin and to make sin more sinful. So the law, instead of opening a way for sinners to make it right with God, it instead shut them out. It shut men and women out. It confined them all in sin and none could escape by anything that they could do. We became prisoners to sin and death. And so the Christ was revealed to set the prisoners free, to set the captive, the captives free. And so Paul says, the Jew was not better because of the law, not before God, and was essentially in the same predicament as the Gentiles who were not under the law. They both were sinners. And if any should be saved, it would only happen by the righteousness that God gives. And if this righteousness is given, by what manner is it given? Is it given through impartation? Through an infusion of righteousness into the person? So that men and women are given some boost, some energy, to become better people, to morally reform by the power of that righteousness, and then become righteous. No. The righteousness of the gospel is not an imparted righteousness. It is not an infused righteousness. It is the righteousness that comes by what God calls imputation. And this word imputation is central to the whole gospel transaction. Imputation is a legal and accounting term. And it means to 
reckon or to credit something to someone in a forensic or legal way, in other words, it does not involve a movement of material and does not change any material in the person to whom something has been imputed. Thus, the Bible declares that our sin was imputed to Christ in a forensic way, in a forensic legal way. And by that, Christ assumed the guilt of it. But he himself remained holy and undefiled. Christ remained holy and undefiled. He just assumed the debt that we owed and that transaction happened by the doctrine of imputation. And in the imputation of righteousness to us, we remain sinners in both experience and practice. But in the courtroom of God, we have no debt, we have no arrears. And that to say, Imputation does not make you feel righteous. It does not make you a righteous person in yourself. It makes you understand how God views you as righteous in his courtroom as the judge. But the term imputation is not a foreign term in the life and experience of men and women. We very much understand the idea of reckoning something to someone. It is only foreign and frowned upon when it comes to God's dealings with sinners. People are not content that the righteousness that God accepts is that which he imputes. People are not content with that. They want something more. (laughs) But there's nothing more than what Christ has already given. There's nothing more that you can add to Christ because Christ is all. Christ is complete in himself. And so we are complete in him. So the fullness of our righteousness was already transacted in the person of Christ and by that doctrine of imputation. Don't listen to a preacher who don't place the doctrine of imputation because they're trying to establish some other grounds of righteousness for you by saying, oh, look at their behavior. They are not behaving as Christians. That's a very tertiary matter. Salvation is holy by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ, which assumes what? Which assumes our union with him. We were united to him. That's the only way our sins could be imputed to him and his righteousness imputed to us.
But Paul comes and says to the Jews, there's no hope for you in the law. Even your great forefathers, Abraham and David, were not mad or declared as righteous people by what things they did. Nor far from it. In the case of Abraham, if he had anything that he did to obtain God's blessing, then it would have been grounds for him to bust. Because he would have kicked in something, no matter how small. But Paul says, but not before God. God would never allow such a testimony before him by reason of his glory. He will not share his glory with another. So a testimony of works as making a sinner righteous before God does not exist in God's understanding. It is an impossibility for God to declare one born in Adam as righteous based on something that they did. It doesn't matter how well they did it. The only person who was declared as righteous by something that he did was Christ Jesus. Christ alone was declared as righteous by something that he did. But he was righteous before he did anything. Jesus did not become righteous because of what he did. He was righteous before. What he did proved that he was already righteous. So Jesus was not made righteous by law obedience. The law proved that he was already righteous. He was righteous as the Logos. He was righteous right from the womb of Mary. He was always righteous because as God, his righteousness is immutable. It is unchangeable. So how then did Abraham get such a good report of righteousness and to be called the friend of God? Paul says because he believed God and God imputed righteousness to him. God credited righteousness to him. What is the point? The point is that Paul is wanting to elevate this thing called faith versus the works of the law. And by faith, he is not saying this is something that is found naturally occurring in the hearts of men and women as oil is found naturally in Texas or Saudi Arabia or Venezuela, there's virtually no oil to be found naturally in the lamps of the children born in Adam. Faith is not natural to us. But Paul wants to build this understanding of the righteousness of God 
in the matter of faith. And the faith is not the way that a lot of people understand faith to be. By faith, Paul means by that which you did not do. I'm going to repeat that. By faith, Paul means by that which you did not do, that which you contributed nothing towards. In other words, by that which was done by another. And so faith means being declared righteous by the righteousness of another, by the faithfulness of another, whose name is Christ Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the son and descendant of David, according to the flesh. It was his faithfulness to God on your behalf that has become the basis of your salvation, of your standing before God. In his faithfulness alone are all the elect constituted as righteous before God. And this is the only way God deals with sinners. The sinners whom he seeks to bless. This is the only legitimate transaction before God. So, the hallmark of this gospel is the person of Christ and his work. And in that, God works through the doctrine of imputation to settle all legal matters and claims that relate to his righteousness and to your sin and mine to his satisfaction so that he, that is God, through Christ remains the just and justifier of all who come to him. He remains just in that he is not arbitrarily calling James righteous who is not righteous in himself. He has Christ standing in the place of all his elect people in union with them and meeting all of God's requirements for them. In other words, when Christ showed up, he appeared to be the justification of all those that he represented, all those that were given him by the Father. So that this whole matter of justification was accomplished and was settled, was declared to be settled by the death and resurrection of Christ. That is why the death and resurrection of Christ is very central to the gospel declaration. Okay? So in the matter of David, the adulterer and the murderer, 
And I'm sure he, like us, had many other sins. He blessed the name of God in Psalm 32 for not imputing his sins to him. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. David recognized the blessing of the gospel in that in this gospel, God does not impute the sins of his people to them. God does not account, he does not credit any of the sins of his people to them. Not even one of them is credited to their account. That is very scandalous, knowing who I am and knowing yourself, knowing the sins that you've committed and the sins that you still commit. And God saying, none of your sins have been credited to your account. So that is good basis to bless the name of the Lord and to call yourself a blessed man or woman this morning if God did not impute your sins to you. So this is what God has done. God imputed the sins of his people not to bulls and gods, but to a qualified person, to a qualified representative person, Christ Jesus and made him liable, made him responsible for every one of your sins, your sins of all time. And when Christ rendered propitiation of sins, to propitiate means to satisfy and to remove the wrath. So those are the two elements in propitiate. It means to satisfy and to remove the wrath. So it is more than just satisfaction of sin. It also speaks to the removal of the wrath. So Christ Jesus made full satisfaction for all your sins by his death. And God imputed he credited righteousness in the place where there was to be the condemnation of sin and cleared the accounts of all his people of any sin debt and its ramifications. Understand me? And that is the scandal and the offense of this gospel that we are preaching. And the Jews were not too amused to hear this message because they still insisted that one had to be submitted to the law of Moses if they were to be blessed with Abraham. And we see that also in the book of Galatians, the Judaizers came to the Galatian churches and they were demanding that these Gentile believers needed to be circumcised for them to be fully saved. <laughs> Add a little bit of Moses to grace. Yeah. So that was the conflict 
And that conflict has not stopped. Unfortunately, we still have many Judaizers still in our day who are of the same legal persuasion, not understanding the gravity of the matter at hand. And they cause as much untold trouble by calling us by such wonderful and beautiful names as antinomians or anti-law people. They claim that we hate the law of God just because we make a distinction between grace and law, between law and gospel. And you're always going to be called an anti-law person as long as you continue to make that distinction. So get used to it, but never agree to mixing law and grace for the sake of making peace with men. No, you can't do that. Okay? That does not honor the testimony of Christ Jesus. But because Abraham was and is such a central figure in God's revelation of this matter of the gospel, Apostle Paul continued to expand on him and essentially saying, Abraham was a relevant figure to not just the Jews according to the flesh, but also to the Gentiles like you and I. Both Jew and Gentile intersect in Abraham as they also intersect in Christ Jesus. So Paul says in verse 13 of Romans 4, let's go to verse 13, Romans 4, and we'll work our way all the way to the end. Paul says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15, and he repeated the same in different places. And this promise was given almost 430 years before the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. And there was a reason for that ordering, as Paul says in Galatians 3, 15 to 18, and we'll go there and read Galatians 3, 15 to 18, Paul says, Brethren, I speak in the manner of man, Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. By the nature of a covenant, of an agreement, of a contract, once it has been signed, has been ratified, it cannot be cancelled. It cannot be set aside. You cannot go and change it. 
You cannot add anything to it. That is the basic nature of a contract. That is the basic nature of a covenant. Once the terms have been agreed upon, you cannot go back and change it. Verse 16, now to Abraham and his seed, where the promises made, he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, later to the Abrahamic covenant, cannot now, cannot set aside the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. So essentially, the Abrahamic covenant was a covenant between God and Christ. That's what the text is saying. The Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of God in Christ. Verse 18, Galatians 3 still. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. If your salvation, if your justification, if your eternal life, if your whatever blessing from God is based on your own obedience, Paul says, then it is no longer of promise. The promise came earlier than the giving of the law. And God preaching by that ordering the preeminence of the promise over the law, in other words, the preeminence of Christ over Moses, of gospel over law, of the New Testament over the old covenant of Mount Sinai, the preeminence of the spirit over the flesh. So in the Genesis account, it seems when you're reading that the promise was made or was to be made to seize in plural. But Apostle Paul, by Holy Spirit inspiration, says, no, it was actually in view of the one person, of Christ who is the seed. In other words, all the promises made to Abraham were made in Christ. They were Christological. Yes and amen in him. All promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. So the promise of Abraham's inheritance was not made to him through the law, but by the righteousness of faith. You see the distinction. We have to follow these arguments and make the proper distinctions. The promise to Abraham was not made to him through his obedience, but by the righteousness of faith. 
And what does that mean? It means the righteousness of Christ. It means the righteousness of God. It means by the righteousness which would be established by Christ Jesus. And that also implies a righteousness which was not by Abraham's own obedience because the very nature of the promise is that it is of grace alone. But why was it of grace alone? Or why is it of grace alone? For many reasons. Obviously because God will not share his glory. But also because God's nature demands that he is not obligated to anyone. And that none could ever do anything that would make him obligated to his creation. God is not obligated to anyone. He is obligated to himself. The matter of your salvation is God's own obligation to himself. Your salvation will not fail, not because you gave up something, but because of God's own faithfulness to himself. His obligation to glorify himself. That's the only guarantee that you make it to the shores of heaven. He obligated to glorify himself in the person of Christ to bring you to glory. The creature, that is you and I, by nature is incapable to do anything meritorious in respect of God. Why? Because God alone has merit in himself. God alone causes things to happen. God alone has life in himself. And thus, if the creature should transact with God, it shall be by the merit that he alone provides, the merit that he alone gives. I'm going to have to repeat that. If God should transact in the matter of blessing with his creation, it shall only be on the basis of the merit that he himself has provided in the person of Christ. Apart from the merit that comes from Jesus Christ, there's no basis for God to transact anything in any way that benefits you. Okay? So that merit is that which Christ has revealed in his person and his work, the righteousness of God. Also, if you recall the teaching from the book of Ephesians, God designed this whole salvation matter so that it would be to the praise 
of the riches of his glorious grace. God has to be praised. He must be praised for the glory of the riches of his grace. So then, righteousness is imputed and has to be accredited apart from my works or your works, not as something and with human works, like what happens with employment and our paychecks in the places of work. Every two weeks or every month we get a paycheck and that paycheck does not come as grace. It comes as something that we are owed, as something that we earned by our own sweat. So the employer is obligated to adequately pay their employees for the labor and services rendered as per the employment contract. But there's no such thing with God. Christ alone, as God's faithful servant, is he who merited salvation for his people, and he alone is glorified by God for the work that he did. And all the elect are glorified in him and never apart from him. No one will be glorified apart from Christ Jesus, apart from being in Christ Jesus. So the righteousness of faith is essentially saying the righteousness of Christ in which you did nothing and you do nothing to cause or to maintain, but is what? How is this righteousness given and maintained? It is freely given you. The Bible says it is given without a cause. It is given without effort from you. It is given without your permission. It is a righteousness that is imposed on you by reason of God's election and grace. You did not choose God, could not choose God even on your best day, but he chose you. And so God imposed himself and his blessing on you. And a lot of people may feel offended by the language of imposition. But that is not a bad thing at all. It is actually a matter of celebration and praise that God was pleased to impose his grace on a sinful people who were not looking for it. Because the truth be told, if God does not impose his will on you, you surely march happily to hell. Thank God for imposing salvation by grace on us. So all this matter of promise happened apart from law obedience. 
And Paul is saying to the Jews and anybody who may think they may get into God's blessing by something that they do, Paul says the Lord does not take one into the inheritance of God. He does not make anyone heirs of the kind of this inheritance. Why? Verse 14, Romans 4. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. If those who are of law, in other words, if it were possible for law keepers to become heirs of God's inheritance by reason of their obedience to the law, then faith is made void and the promise, even Christ and the cross are made of no effect. And that means the law is contrary to the nature and design of the promise. The law is contrary to the nature of salvation. Because God says, if it is of law, then faith and promise are negated. And that to say, law is incompatible with faith and promise. This is not understood. And the problem that we have with all these confessions of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, and a whole lot of other confessions of faith, they did not understand this matter. They did not understand the relationship between the law and the gospel. They did not understand the relationship that the believer, the redeemed, have with the law. That they die to the law. That they don't get any blessing from being under the law. They are not in the same WhatsApp group. <laughs> okay? Law is not in the same WhatsApp group as faith and promise. They are contrary to each other. Why? Because of the nature of salvation. The inheritance of salvation is of grace alone, which means it is of God's doing alone, and the law is not of faith, and neither is it of grace, because it is of you doing. The Lord demands that you do things to enter into God's inheritance. So faith does not work for the promise. Faith rests in the promise. Okay? I also hear uh, some Reformed people and old Reformed theologians say, there was grace in law. They say, oh yeah, there was grace in law. Now that is a good soundbite for CNN, but it is false. Paul says, law voids both faith and promise. 
And that is why one cannot say they are under the moral law of Moses when they are under Christ. The very moral law, the Ten Commandments, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that they are the ministry of death and condemnation. They are the letter that kills. And that is why Paul is saying that is contrary to faith and promise because the law can only bring death to a sinner. The law is of works and thus one could not please God by that which is not of faith. The law is not of faith. The inheritance is of grace. The inheritance is of promise and that means it is of faith. Grace and works do not play in the same team, on the same team, they play in opposing teams. Grace is alone the foundation of all of the promises that God has given in Christ. And in grace alone are we found in the winning team. Okay? Verse 15. Paul says, Romans 4, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law has a problem for a sinner. It does not do for the sinner what they think it will do for them. Because the law by its nature raises the sinful passions. In other words, it produces death, which is the condemnation of sin. So by reason of God's justice, where there is sin, there is of necessity the arousal of God's wrath against sin. But where there is no law as a basic principle, there is also no transgression. Thus, consequently, there is no wrath. But this is not saying that people were not sinners before the law was given on Mount Sinai. Because people were dying before the law was given. We're going to hear that argument from Romans chapter 5. People were dying before Mount Sinai because they sinned in Adam. Okay? But the greater point that Paul is making here is that of the righteousness of faith. By which righteousness we have the inheritance and there's no law of performance that is attached to your getting into this promise and to remain in this promise. I need you to understand this again very clearly. Paul is saying, the nature of the promise of salvation is such that there's no law for you to obey to get it. And there's no law for you to keep, to maintain it. And there's no law for you to break so as to lose it. Because the promise is attached to grace. Thus, there's no transgression that you could ever do. 
as to take you out of that covenant or to cause God's wrath by your shenanigans and cause him to say, okay, I'm changing my mind. Because the whole matter was given, conditioned on the covenant faithfulness of some other person. That is Christ Jesus. So there's no law to do to get in, no law to perform to remain in, because you were grafted in by grace and you are maintained by grace and you shall make it home by grace alone. Understand me? Verse 16. Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed not only to those who are of the law but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. Therefore he's saying everything considered the inheritance of salvation is of faith the faith that is grounded on God's faithfulness to give it. And in this way alone is the promise made sure to all the seed, to all who are of the elect, not only to those who are the elect of Moses, of the Jews, but also the elect from among the Gentiles who are of the faith of Abraham. So Paul is saying faith or the righteousness of faith is what breaks the boundaries between the elect Jew and Gentile and unites them under the banner of the faith of Abraham, the righteousness of Christ the blessing of Christ. But let me make some qualification. When Paul says, the faith of Abraham, he is not speaking of faith as given by Abraham, for no man can give another man faith. It is the faith of Abraham as to its nature and what it looked to. The faith of Abraham looked to the person of Christ. Okay? It is the faith that looks to Christ, seeks his blessing through Christ, eternal life through Christ, forgiveness of sins through Christ, and this is all apart from the law. Okay? And Paul again saying that if there was any salvation in the law, then by nature, that would have excluded the participation of even the elect Gentiles because then only those who are of law would have been blessed. In other words, all elect Gentiles, you and me, would be excluded from the blessing of Christ unless we had been made Jews in some way. And that is why the Judaizers were trying to make Gentiles into Jews, by demanding their circumcision. Okay, But we know very clearly that Gentiles were never contracted under Mount Sinai, were never contracted under Moses. Israel and the Jews were under the old covenant of the law. 
So, Abraham was given as the example of faith for both Jew and Gentile as he is related to both but priority and emphasis being given to his faith before his circumcision. So then only those who are of the faith of Abraham are regarded as the children of Abraham, even the children of Sarah. And that would have been a great offense to the Jews because imagine what they are hearing from Apostle Paul, that these Gentiles who were not even law keepers, they didn't even try to keep the law. They are now being blessed with Abraham and still they don't need to be circumcised. It is like here in America, in our current political climate, coming and calling border jumpers, faithful and patriotic Americans with all full rights of citizenship. They just cross the border like yesterday and say, okay, what a wonderful American this guy is. That's exactly what the, the Jews are dealing with, with respect to the inclusion of the Gentiles without being circumcised. So the Jews wanted to build a war against the Gentiles through the law, but God, through the gospel, came and said, tear it down. Okay? Verse 17. Romans 4, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations in the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. In the original promise, God said he would make Abraham the father of many nations, give him land, and he did fulfill that even according to the flesh to some level through Ishmael and Isaac and their physical descendants. But eschatologically, the promise was looking to the nation of the elect of both Jew and Gentile in a spiritual sense. Now gathered in the person of Christ, the nation of Christ the church body, the assembly of God's people. But Paul says this year, he says, in the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. See that Paul says, in the presence of him whom he believed, Emphasis being on Abraham believing and not working. Believing this God who gives life to the dead. Or I thought it was preachers in their sermons who give life to the dead. <laughs> no. It is God who gives life to the dead both in the first creation of Adam and in the second creation of Christ. It is God who gives life to the dead in regeneration if they should come into the partaking of the blessing of salvation. Seriously, I did not think 
that the matter of who regenerates a sinner would be a controversial one, especially from those who profess to be sovereign grace believers and preachers. It is God who gives life to the dead. There's no argument about that. He does not need help from anyone. He does not need help from this someone to give life to the dead. God has never needed help from anyone to give life to anything. And it is said to me, to hear professed sovereign grace preachers not making peace with this basic truth and trying to dilute it, that they may defend their own tradition. That really offends me and makes me sad. They think and they want their explanations of the gospel to be what gives life to people. There's no life that is given to anyone by theological explanations. I could go to the cemetery and re-preach this whole message 20 times a day and not a single person is going to rise from the dead. Life is breathed into a dead man. Explaining how the heart and lungs work will not help a man who is lifeless. Telling them about the blood circulation system will not help the dead to live. They need someone to come and get on their knees and breathe life into them. CPR. I'm a Red Cross trained guy for my work. For CPR. Just in case someone would need that kind of help. I could not come and explain to them how this whole thing works. They just need mouth-to-mouth respiration. Thus, in the gospel sense, the Son of God must speak to the dead sinner and issue his command, a divine command, a divine imperative, and say, Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, come forth. James, come forth. Little daughter, little girl, I say, arise. That is how the dead are made alive. That is how spiritual life is communicated to the dead men and women by the voice of the Son of God. Christ has to speak life to you or else you are not coming. You are not coming to Christ. You are not coming to the truth of Christ. You are not aiming the truth of Christ. It cannot come by me. I have no life in myself. I have no life in myself. The preacher is used as a loudspeaker for the growing of faith. In the second command, in the command that says, give her something to eat, take off his grave clothes. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But faith is not regeneration. Faith is not regeneration. It is the evidence of regeneration. It is the evidence that one has been made alive. 
regeneration must happen prior to faith and repentance. Or else they will not happen. A dead man cannot turn their, in their bed. If they are dead, they remain in that one place in their bed unless they've been given life and ability to turn, which is to repent. The hearing of the dead happens when Christ himself speaks to them and say, Arise. Because his words are what? What did Jesus say in John 6.63? It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The words that Christ speaks are they that are spirit and they are life. I am just a flesh. I'm just the flesh. Okay? So, if you hear someone... In the light of what I taught in the previous two weeks and what I just said now and preached, come and say, go your side. We do not preach the gospel. We do not need to preach the gospel. Then you know that they are being economical with the truth. And they have some ulterior motive that is nothing to do with exalting Christ. Because they're lying. I preach the gospel. I preach the gospel. Everybody who listens to me knows that I preach the gospel. I travel to preach the gospel. I write a lot of things gospel. But I do not believe that I have the power in myself through my words, to cause a dead person to rise to spiritual life. That I cannot ascribe to myself, and I will not ascribe that power to any preacher, but to God alone. God has to cause regeneration. He has to prepare the ground before the seed can grow. Okay? Let us hear this again. In the presence of him whom he believed... God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did. This God who gives life to the dead also calls those things which do not yet exist as though they did. There's a lot of things here. First and foremost, Paul is speaking to God's sovereignty and power over his creation. To say there is nothing that gets in the way of anything that he has proposed to do. There is nothing that frustrates God's purpose. As Job said in Job 42 verse 2, I know that you can do everything. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you, can be frustrated. There's no purpose of God that will be frustrated by your sin, by my sin, by the devil, or by anybody. So it is in the nature of the power of God to call things into existence from nothing, as was in the first creation, he created things out of nothing, things that did not exist before. 
but did exist in his sovereign will and purpose. Also, in the matter of salvation, what does God say about us as the redeemed? He calls us sinners the righteous. He calls us holy people. And yet we are ungodly. And yet we know that we are sinners. How can the ungodly be called the saints of God? How can they be called holy and righteous? He calls us righteous people. He says we have a righteousness that is yet to be actual to us in our experience of it. Christ's righteousness is actual to us in God's accounting of it because of the certainty of Christ, the faithfulness of God, but we are yet to experience what that actually looks like. How does it actually feel to be a righteous person without any sin whatsoever. We are yet to experience that. And yet God says we are holy and we are righteous. He is calling things that we are not yet. As though we are those things already. But they are sure to be done because there's nothing that frustrates his purpose. So in Christ, he accomplished and will accomplish all his good pleasure for his people. But here is the immediate context of that statement. Let's go to verse 18 and 19. Who, that is Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So this was the present situation or circumstance of Abraham. He had to contend with his present experience versus the promise of God. And they were not matching. They were not in agreement. His circumstances were not in agreement with what God was promising him. His experience was telling him something different. It was contrary to hope. It was contradictory to hope even. But how? Because of his body and age that were waxing old. Abraham was an old man at the time of these promises. But the predicament was compounded even more by Sarah's age 
Sarah was not doing any better. Her womb was dead. She was past childbearing age. So Sarah's womb got in the way, at least it seemed to Abraham. So this was an impossible situation for Abraham and Sarah to deal with. And Paul uses the language of deadness of Sarah's womb because he wants to link us to the God who gives life to the dead. Don't miss that. Paul said, the God who gives life to the dead. And when it came to the womb of Sarah, he does not say, and Sarah's womb was past childbearing age. He says, well, it was dead. Why? Why does Paul use that language of Sarah's womb being dead? Because he wants to highlight to you and I that as with Sarah's womb that was dead, all men and women spiritually are dead. And if they should be saved, it shall only be by the God who gives life to the dead, speaking to them in the fullness of time, as God promised Sarah and Abraham that in the fullness of time, this time next year, I'll come and Sarah shall have a child. So in the fullness of time, the God who gives life to the dead is he who comes and speaks life to all those who shall bear or should bear fruit unto Christ. So there is a parallelism and word play here by Apostle Paul. And also, I'll make this additional commentary. In life, we also are surrounded by such situations as Abraham and Sarah had. Circumstances where and when we feel that we have a seemingly hopeless an impossible situation, seemingly dead situation. But it is instructive and helpful to see that it is God who brings about the barrenness to our plans, to our situations, to our seasons. Not because we necessarily sinned, but for something greater. Not as punishment, but as for the building of faith. So you may be going through the desert, going through the wilderness, for one thing or another, know that God is behind it, and know that it is not a permanent situation, because in the fullness of time, God is going to make everything right. So that was written also for our encouragement so that we do not lose hope. So what did Abraham do? Verse 20, he did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. So Abraham 
rose above the experience of his body, the experience of his immediate environment, the experience of his sight, and reached for something greater to interpret his circumstances of his life. He did not waver at the promise of God, the promise of having a child of his own at a very advanced age. And I'm going to say this. (laughs) When Isaac was born, Abraham was old then, and Sarah too. If it were in our day with the nosy neighbors, children's services would have been despised to Abraham's and Sarah's house to see if they had not abducted or stolen someone's kid. Like, how could you have... (laughs) Where did you get this kid from? You are 100 something years old and you have a baby. You are nursing a baby on a lap. Someone call 911 or call children's services. I just said to make an observation. But Abraham did not waver in his trust in God's ability to bring about the promise, but was strengthened in faith. How was that possible? Because Abraham did not have the Bible to read. Abraham did not have the Bible to read. How was Abraham's faith strengthened? Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, 1 to 2. We know chapter 11 of Hebrews is the Hebrews hall of faith. And the writer says, Now faith is the substance of things hopeful, the evidence of things not seen. For by it the elders obtained a good testimony. The evidence of things hopeful. The substance of things hopeful, the evidence of things not seen. In the matter of Abraham, what Abraham had not seen was Christ. He had not seen the incarnate Christ as he was revealed in Palestine. But Hebrews 12, 1 to 2, we hear this. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Abraham overcame by faith the faith that looked to Christ. Abraham had the promises, but by faith. Well, the writer of Hebrews, I think Hebrews eleven thirteen is going to tell us that all these died in faith, having embraced the promises from afar, but they did not actually possess them then. 
And so Abraham overcame and got a good report because the faith that he had was the faith of Christ. Christ is the author of that faith that believes God in difficult and impossible situations. The faith that overcomes and gives a good report with God. Christ is the author of that faith which Abraham and all the Old Testament saints had. They overcame because of him. Because apart from Christ working in and through Abraham, Abraham would have been plagued by much unbelief. And to some level, Abraham going into the tent with Hagar was a moment of unbelief. When Abraham went into the tent with Hagar, it was a moment of unbelief. And we also have our Hagar moments that we try and go into the tent because of unbelief. But we are not condemned for it. With the case of Abraham, it was part of the gospel script because God wanted to preach law and gospel. We are almost done. So Abraham overcame because of the faith of Christ that was given him. And being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. That's verse 21. So through God-given faith, Abraham was fully convinced. Convinced of what? That God was able to do what he had promised. That is the essence of the faith that pleases God. That God is able and has saved and will save all who have faith in his son, all whom he has given faith in his son. That is the conviction of faith. Resting in God's promise and resting in his ability to deliver on the promise. And Hebrews 11, 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So the whole matter here as we stand is that God wants you and I to trust him in spite of our circumstances because it matters to his character. Trust him because he never wavers, he never fails, and he never changes his mind on what he promised to do. It is part of his glory to be faithful. He is faithful to everything that he has promised. Verse 22, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. Paul is saying, in the concluding remarks of this chapter, your father Abraham became the friend of God, was declared as righteous, not by something that he did, it was not by him offering Isaac, as some Jews thought. That was the basis of his reward with God. 
Abraham was saved by the principle of imputation of a righteousness that did not belong to him. And that is really Paul's point that is laboring in this whole chapter. This whole chapter of Romans 4 is arguing the matter of imputation of righteousness as the only grounds of justification. That's his whole point. He wants to emphasize the nature and manner of this transaction that blessed Abraham. He is not arguing the timing of justification. He is arguing the manner in which righteousness is accounted to a person. And it is by the doctrine of imputation, by them not doing anything to get it, but by God freely giving it. That's his whole point. So it was accounted to him, it was freely given him, without any works of the law, as the Jews may have thought. And it was faith apart from works. It was faith apart from circumcision. And it was faith apart from keeping Moses. And it was faith apart from sight, apart from their present circumstances. It is faith, even when we are dealing with the present circumstance of sin. Because I hear people, I have people write me and they say, oh brother, I don't think I'm saved because of the things that I am experiencing. I think my heart is cold over the things of Christ, so maybe I'm a reprobate. But what are they doing? They are going back into the tent with Hagar. They are looking at the barrenness of Sarah's womb. They've stopped looking to the promise of God. So imputation of righteousness is in spite of your experience. For now, you're going to have to experience your sin because your body is not yet glorified. Okay? And so the righteousness that made it well between Abraham and God is the righteousness that I now proclaim to you through the gospel. It is the righteousness of God. It is the righteousness of Christ. It is the righteousness of faith. And the righteousness that is apart from the law, it is righteousness that is imputed And the one who has submitted to that righteousness by faith alone is blessed together with Abraham and possesses the faith of Christ, even the faith of Abraham. So the matter of Abraham was not for him alone, but also was written for our benefit, that we may follow the footsteps of Abraham and the saints of old in this regard and understand that apart from the imputation of righteousness, there's no inheritance for you, there's no salvation for you. Imputation of the righteousness of Christ is the only legitimate way for God to call you a righteous person. Verse 24 and 25 and we'll be done.
but also for us, it shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Paul says, It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Paul here now describes the two hallmarks of what identifies true Christians. He says, they too, that is Christians, the redeemed, as Abraham, have a righteousness imputed. And they also believe in the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus and what it accomplished. The Jesus who died because of our transgressions imputed to him and was raised because of our justification imputed to us. So Paul reduces the whole gospel matter to union with Christ, to substitution or representation of Christ in his death and resurrection. So Paul sees the resurrection of Christ as a significant testimony to not just our security, but as confirmation or a receipt to our complete justification at the death of Christ. Essentially to say, the proof of our justification was finished by the resurrection of Christ, not by our faith in the resurrection of Christ. Justification happened when he died. So the resurrection affirms is the receipt to prove that justification already happened. So justification is not waiting for you to come 2,000 years later and then to happen. No, that's not true. Justification happened when the payment was done and the resurrection providing that receipt or testimony, confirmation that it happened. Raised because of our justification. But I want to draw your attention here before I finish to something that Paul said. He said, it shall be imputed. And that is in the future tense. Paul says it shall be imputed. I thought righteousness was already imputed when Christ died. What is Paul saying? Paul is speaking eschatologically. In other words, he has a view to the final consummation of things, salvation, the glorification of the saints. He has an eschatological mind of righteousness at this point. And he is saying, those who come to God through Christ 
are they who shall possess the righteousness of Christ in its eschatological fullness, or the redeemed shall possess in reality the fullness of the righteousness of Christ. In other words, we shall not always remain as sinners in practice. We shall experience what that imputed righteousness feels like, but not yet. But be of full conviction of this matter. It has already been accomplished, and you possess it near and now in your account. And in the fullness of time, it shall be fully realized to you. But you need to know, you need to be reminded that there's no blessing for you in the law. But only a constant reminder of sin. Only a constant reminder of sin. Your blessing is in the promise. Your blessing is in God's grace. Your blessing is in the righteousness of faith. No matter if you feel barren as Sarah at one point, no matter if you feel old as Abraham, and God says this was written for your sake because you're going to experience the same. That we may not waver in hope and against hope. Against the hope of what God has given us. God would do all that he promised to do. Because he's the God who calls those things which do not exist as though they did. That's who he is. So remember, it is the righteousness of faith and not of works. And righteousness of faith, again, is lazy boy gospel. The righteousness that you contributed nothing towards. It's all given by Christ, 100% of grace. Okay? Amen. We are done. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the many, many, many words that have been spoken this morning. And the message that you have given us is simple. It's all of Christ. It's all of grace. It's all of promise. And none is of law. There's no blessing that comes to your people by way of law. Only by the righteousness of faith, which is the righteousness by the faithfulness of Christ. We thank you for this wonderful gospel. For in Christ, we have met every jot and tittle for our blessing. We thank you for these that have gathered around the message. I pray that you continue to speak to them and grow them in the knowledge of this truth. And yet, many may oppose, but they oppose out of ignorance. We thank you that you have opened these things to us. We pray for many of your people who may be experiencing some dry moments of life, some deadness, 
some circumstances, impossible situations, even because of sin. Lord, let them know that your faithfulness is greater than their circumstances. And that as you came through for Abraham and Sarah, you shall also come through for us. And even came through for, Lord, for the Lord Jesus Christ, who was in the belly of the beast, in the grave for three days and three nights. And yet he arose the third day as testimony of our justification, of a propitiation fully accomplished, righteousness established for his people. We honor you for all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Bye-bye. Romans chapter 5. On next Sunday, the Lord willing, be praying for me for strength. Okay? Thank you.